This episode of the Keen on Yoga podcast is sponsored by Moments. It's a booking system we've been using for the last year, roughly speaking, and we really recommend it. It's a one-stop shop, really, and it integrates with Zoom and allows you to take payments via PayPal and Stripe. You can set up courses, trainings, retreats, keep an eye on your business with robust reporting. It even runs a staff payroll. So if you do run a studio, it will take care of teacher payments as well. Excellent team at Moments will help you set up, migrate from your other system and offer onboarding support. They're really hands-on at this. Once you've set up and are going, you will have time-saving automations, marketing and win-back campaigns to keep those students coming back. Moments literally takes care of the whole business side for you, so you're really free to take care of your creative side. Best of all, you've got that real-time support via phone, live chat and email. Moments is offering Keenan Yoga listeners and viewers a two-month free trial. Click on the link below or visit moments.com, that's moments.com, and book a demo. If you quote Keenan Yoga to get your free trial, you'll get two months free. Now on to the episode. So welcome, Ty Landon, to the Keenan Yoga podcast. It's been a while trying to get you here, so I'm pleased we finally uh, arrived at uh, getting on the Keenan Yoga podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Adam. I'm happy to yeah. talk to you. Yeah, we had a few glitches with internet and, uh, and timings but now we've got Ty we've finally captured him pinned him down we're ready to we're ready to grill him so <laughs> not really <laughs> so uh, um yeah I mean let's start at the obvious place I always start really here with just like do you want to just I know you've told this story many times before but you just want to tell again briefly about your background and how you've started yoga how you got into it you know mm. sure I'll give you a really short version yeah, um, we still stopped talking. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I started yoga, I was 30. Um, uh-huh. So it was about 17 years ago. And um, I uh, had just moved to the East Coast to go to graduate school. And mm. um, I started the same that, you know, right, right at that time. Mm. Um, and I, I did not think that yoga was terribly interesting when I started. Um, <laughs> that's funny that's funny <laughs> so you didn't have that kind of coming home moment that everyone says oh the first time I stepped in the door I felt like I was at home you didn't feel that well you know I not when I stepped in the door but by the time that's I walked funny. out of the door after that okay, first class yeah. I was taken yeah but I mean okay. my, my impression of yoga was that it really had nothing to do with me I, I thought it kind of yeah. a little bit absurd to tell you the uh-huh. truth and um you know I kind of associated it with I don't know, you know, cultural appropriation and kind of superficial spirituality and so uh-huh. on. And so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but yeah. a friend of mine encouraged me to go. Um, and I, well, I was, I was struggling with depression at that time, as many yeah. people who stay in academia for as long as I did do. And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, he told me that it could help. And I was ready to, you know, try. Most yeah. Everything. When you're at that place, you're in exactly. yoga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, it took, a, it took years, but it worked. Yeah. Okay. It cured me uh, even of that uh, terrible malady. Right. right. Yeah. So you were really quite suffering then, were you at the time? I was for a very long time. Right. Mm-hmm. right. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that didn't go away straight away. It took a number of years of practice, did it? Yes, it did. And it was kind of, but it was kind of a gradual shift out. And one yeah. thing that was really interesting to me was that almost immediately I understood that it would help because it revealed to me, you know, almost by the first day, um, yeah. what the source, the kind of emotional source of that depression was. Uh-huh. Uh, and it helped me f- and, and, and I could feel it viscerally on my body. And I understood right. that I could, you know, that gave me a whole different way to relate to it. Uh, and yoga was presented to me from the first day as an invitation to relate to it viscerally and openly and intelligently. And um, so it, it was, it was an epiphany. It really was. Right. Yeah. I always ask, and people always think I'm, uh, you know, um, just being contrary here, but why, why do you think that, you know, or, or difficult, but why do you think that was that yoga did that? And I always wonder why yoga would be talked of in these kind of terms or almost sound kind of um, <clears throat> rather poetic, you know, and so, you know, exactly what you're talking about at the start, right? Like why, uh, why not football or, you know, martial arts, you know, why, what do you think that made you allow, allowed you to locate? Cause I had the same experience, but I'm always questioning why that was that, that, the, the emotional source seemed to present itself and allow some kind of reconciliation in the way that other modalities that I'd always also done. I was doing gym at the time, try, you know, cause I was also, as I might, you might know, suffering from depression. That's why I got into it. Um, and, and also a philosophy student. So very uh, scathing really towards the, some kind of this kind of thing. So, you know, it was, again, it was a last ditch attempt, you know, anything, I'll try anything. You know? Yeah. And I was surprised. I was surprised because I was doing all other things that didn't seem to be working that well really you know yeah uh, and then it's immediately i did that yoga class I, I i still to this day don't really understand why that works yeah yeah i mean i think my sense of it you know was and remains that it, it has something to do with the kind of awareness that you're bringing to the body mm. and for, for me it was i mean the the, dep- the source of the depression was unprocessed grief and on that first yeah. day i felt my unprocessed grief, like, like it, it felt like I had a, a, a cinder block lodged in my chest. And mm. I realized that I feel that way all the time. Right. But there was Didn't something about the, the way mm. that, you know, the way that we're breathing in yoga and the kind of awareness that we're bringing to the breath and that, you know, it just, it opened a door that, that had been closed for so long, which was a kind of door that, that, that kept me from feeling, that kept my awareness from dropping into that place. Yeah. You know, even if there were other levels of the body that I was quite aware of, um, mm. I was really into climbing before that. Right. And, you know, I would, you know, just tromping through, it, you know, the North American wilderness was kind of my palliative, you know, for many, many years, it's a thing mm. that you respite from it all. Mm. Um, you know, the silence and the exertion and mm. solitude. Um, and yet none of that ever, you know, ha- had the same impact. Mm. It, didn't, it didn't reveal the source of the thing to me in the way that the yoga did. So I think it's about awareness. Yeah. I mean, kind of, I guess, you know, it's not like, we don't have ideas, but it's just kind of kind of intriguing as to why that, you know, that it does, it works so well. I mean, you know, it sounds crazy having, you know, both of us, you know, well, me, me talking about it and having talked for so many years, but still trying to kind of understand 
how and why it works as a modality so well. But um, on a lighter note, mm-hmm. were you good for the, from the first day? Were you good at the postures? Because obviously everyone knows that you've got a, a very impressive and, and great ability with the asanas, right? Let me say, I don't know about your, your psychological yogic state, but at least we know with the asanas, you've got ability there, you know, undisputably. Uh-huh. But you started really late, really late. I mean, I started under 20 and I've never reached your level of ability. So would you just step into the class and start floating around? No, not at all. No, I no, was right. really stiff. I, re- I, I really was quite stiff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I saw my first teacher just about a year ago. I don't get to see her every year, but I saw her about a year ago. And, and um, you know, and, and she confirmed, you know, I had to ask her again because I was like, you know, <laughs> because my wife didn't believe me. You know, she was like, no, you, you know, you must, you must have. No, but, but that's not to deny that you know, maybe I have some natural ability or genetic disposition for it or something like that. I think. Um, How long did it take you to feel like, you know, that you were kind of limbered up and to be able to do a good primary series and, you know, and the things that people, you know, know you for the lifting up, took a, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it took a few, it took a few years. Yeah. Right. I mean, it probably wasn't in, in until I was into my sort of third year of right of fully committed practice that that I had any sort of inclination that I was kind of above average in my right. small yeah. in my very yeah. small <laughs> yoga community in Virginia. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, you're right. Um, mm-hmm. Who were your, so who was your first teacher? I'm sure people would like to know that, you know, who your first teacher was. Yeah, my first teacher, her name is Jennifer Elliott. And okay. she ran Ashtanga Yoga of Charlottesville, who's now, which is now run by a friend of mine, because she's kind of retired in a way. Okay. Um, she was a student of both Richard Freeman and Tim Miller. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, well, and, and, you know, a long time sort of student of, you know, she would make frequent trips to Mysore, yeah. studied with Patabi Joyce, um, Sharat and Saraswati all. Um, and oh, shout out, shout out to Jennifer there. As, yeah. As yeah, the, she was really, you know, the catalyst. To, she to was your, really a teaching. fantastic, yeah. Yeah. fantastic teacher, you know, for many reasons, but I, the, the, the thing that really, that, that, that I'm, I think I am most grateful for apart from the sort of model of like passion and dedication uh, and like the depth of experience that she shared is she really held mm. space, you know, for me and my super mm. messy, you know, my super messy process. It was an emotionally messy process, you know, even to really? go through. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it's sometimes said it's become, it's become quite fashionable as of late, you know, to say that we shouldn't push ourselves in yoga, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It should be very soft and yeah. um, Yeah. You know, that all the aggression should be taken out of it. But, you know, I confess that my, you know, that first five or six years was really, you know, a lot of sort of wrestling down the demons. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was, I think, yeah, I think it's, yeah, and I think it's good to hear you say that because I think it's important as much as, you know, I've definitely been a culprit of saying, you know, like, don't push. But I've also said, you know what, if someone had told me that in the early years, I would have told them to 
f off and and you know and and it had to happen that way in a way like you yes. know because there's stuff that needs to come out and mm-hmm. i mean i think i i still believe that the the instruction i got from john scott about just practice how you feel there, there was a lot in that you know because before that oh, i was trying to be be calm i was trying to be calm and i didn't feel it and when i yeah. had the kind of liberty to practice how i actually felt I kind of wore myself out and I did become more peaceful after just going kind of crazy in the first 20 minutes or so, I suppose. Yeah. 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 No, I I think that's profound advice. Um, Like deceptively simple to, you know, practice how you feel. Mm. Um, Because like insofar as you're trying to, you know, make yourself, make your mind conform to a certain I don't know, to a, to a certain, to a certain principle or to a certain, you know, to, to bring a certain am, emotional ambience into your mind, you know, it's just, uh, that's just a huge distraction from the yoga, you know, from just letting your, letting that awareness really seep in and just being present with whatever's arising. And, yeah, and that, yeah. that's the only, that's the, as simple as it sounds. As well, it's quite Buddhist really, isn't it? it? That is kind of it's peripheral the, awareness, just allowing, you know, kind of awareness to take in everything rather than excluding awareness, kind of actually, in a way, just expanding awareness to include everything rather. That's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the real yeah. solvent, I think, you know, for those. That's, uh, a, that's the thing that kind of liberates those demons from the prisons of our mind and lets them, you know, show themselves as something else. Um, and so, yeah. So, you know, for, for certain people at certain times, that process is not pretty it's not soft mm. <laughs> you know? mm. it's not elegant mm. um mm. and that's okay because j- just mm. as you said i think that at that time if someone had insisted that i sort of you know feign uh feign calmness and contentment <laughs> uh it just wouldn't you know it wouldn't have taken i wouldn't have stuck around yeah i was going to ask you something actually um did you practice immediately from the first day or did it take a while to, to develop a kind of discipline to a, to a daily practice? How, how did that journey go for you? It, it, I, I got into it really quickly. Um, okay. But as I got into the like full, you know, full Mysore program really quickly, it wasn't, it took a few weeks, but that was all. Um, okay. And then it was to stay, and then you got into the kind of habit of daily practice and, mm-hmm. and that kind of took to that kind of naturally, did you? Yeah. At first I was just going on Tuesdays and Thursdays to an afternoon yeah. class. And I mean, I could barely lift my arms above my head. After you know, I was yeah, so yeah, sore. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was so that. painful yeah. that I couldn't imagine yeah. doing it six days a week. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 But then actually, so David Garrigues came and taught a workshop. Uh, I had maybe two months into it for me and he taught a weekend intensive and, um, yeah, I had a, a certain experience there that just really like completely ignited the fire. And uh, that Monday I began, you know, the full, full Mysore <laughs> curriculum. And uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's he's an, he's definitely. Yeah. I can understand. He's an inspiring character. I could, under, I could understand. If, I, if I'd come across him in my early days, I would have been, I would have been pretty converted. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I remember getting mad when someone said, oh, well, practice in the morning. You should do this. This is a Mysore practice, not, you know, with the leg classes. You do them in the evening, whatever, right? And, and then, oh, come to the Mysore, you know, it's, it's early. It's like sick. And it's like, 
I just got angry. I was like, there's no way I'm going to try and get up a move like like that. It's so hard anyway like, to do it. Like first thing, you know, like what do you, what do you, you know, you trying to suggest, you know, kill right. myself here. And it's like just craziness for me. Like, you know, um, I wanted to go back to the talk a little bit later, you know, the, your, your Buddhist connection with the whole thing. But um, mm. I suppose as a precursor to that, um, the, the, the famous, um, well, famous yogi Buddhist scholar, Richard Freeman, um, I was going to ask how it was, you know, when you met Richard, because obviously he's been a huge influence in, in your teaching and Mary, obviously, um, when you when you met them um, and how that transpired, that you work, started working with them and how was it to work with them? Anything on mm. that, that would be very interesting to people, I'm sure. Yeah, so um, I didn't meet Richard until 2012, so about 10 years ago. And um, I had wanted to meet him for some time because, um, you know, during that first year that I started doing Mysore, I watched those old Yoga Works videos um, and saw him, you know, in that group doing third series and I was just like, wow, <laughs> this is, I just remember thinking, I want whatever he's feeling while he's doing that. I want to feel that. Like, I want to, I want, I want to feel that consciousness and that energy that, that he's experiencing. And it was him in particular, you know, I didn't even know his name. I didn't even know who that was. And I went and asked my mm. teacher to, oh yeah, that's Richard. You know, and I knew that she'd studied with him. So I was interested in meeting him for a long time. So I went to Boulder in 2012 um, and took their month long intensive. And mm. uh, I had just finished graduate school. Um, I was in a postdoc year and I, um, you know, I, 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 I didn't wanna continue in academia because for me it was, I mean, it became clear in time that it was quite a toxic environment. Um, mm. It's extremely competitive. And, mm. uh, and I, I honestly, I didn't like the way that the analytic philosophy was impacting my ordinary thinking patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So it, it, yeah. Bega- it began to feel <laughs> it began yeah. to feel very oppressive, and yeah, uh, yeah. Like and also, you didn't. I mean, like from my experience, like because I come from a similar background, I didn't do the PhD. I got out earlier than that. Um, well, or, or yoga kind of. You had more sense. Gra- grabbed me. Well, I you know I just had to encounter yoga, so it was an escape route, maybe at a slightly earlier date. You know, like um, you know, if you get into acad- academic philosophy for for Socratic reasons, let's say, you you know you get you know, sooner or later, pretty depressed, um, you know, about where it's going. And, and, and for yeah. me, it was like the proof wasn't in the pudding. Like, I didn't see these guys that were my mentors and, you know, the, uh, the you know, the academic kind of giants that I look, had looked up to uh, when I yeah. got to know them better. I didn't see them as particularly embodied. I didn't see them as happy. I didn't see them as living decent right. lives either a lot of the things that i was starting to discover weren't uh, that impressive to me <laughs> you know about their their lives and the way that they were living them so you know i just kind of felt well what you know like if you get into it for that reason not just simply to do a career you know it's pretty disheartening and i know that you spoke on another podcast right. maybe it was maybe it was scots about how you felt about the you know your you know your other kind of disembodied kind of <laughs> um philosophy uh, peers yes Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I had, I had quite similar experiences. Um, and, you know, 
you know, by, by contrast, you know, many of the people that I, I knew in yoga were sane, believe it or not, (laughs) they, um, just seemed, you know, much more, um, uh, you know, healthy, uh, in, in mind, body and spirit. And so, um, and, and, you know, I just felt healthier and more alive, uh, in that world. And I had indeed, you know, come, come into, yoga for, as you put it, Socratic reasons, that is, or, sorry, into, into philosophy, mm. you know, mm-hmm. wanting to, you know, seeking, you know, wanting to understand yeah. something. I mean, I didn't go into it at all because I, I saw it as a career or anything. I was mm. just following, you know, my kind of intellectual path, passions, following the questions, you know, and ended up there. And, um, you know, but the, 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 you know, whatever I was looking for, I, I was drawing much closer to it or relating to it more richly in yoga than in academic philosophy. And I was, I was really careful not to approach yoga philosophy with the same kind of, uh, you know, academic mind. Rika. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, because I was really keenly aware of the way that that uh sort of analytic approach could suck the life out of any theme that it got its hands on Mm, mm. you know because i i was i i I was writing about human development and love uh in philosophy and i have no regrets about it. it was a very enriching very enriching time um it's just that i had come to the point where it, it, it was just not, you know, I understood it. I had sort of taken from it the enrichment that I, that, that I was there to take and, and that it was, mm. it was kind of time to move on. Um, but relating mm. to these things in a more embodied way, you know, to having a, a, a sort of more, the, the, to me that seeking switched from being so intellectual and analytic to being more embodied being more heart centric. Um, and that was, uh, mm. yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a profound, wonderful kind of shift. So I think to bring it around to Richard again, cause I realized that I've derailed the conversation as usual. I mean, how does that, you know, if we try and segue this in, how does that, how did he help to kind of contextualize the asana yeah. part of what you were doing? Because I kind of recognize it myself. It was many years before I brought the philosophy back to the asana. I just kind of felt the asana kind of worked. Yeah. I didn't really know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really pers- actually pursue any of the, the yoga philosophy around it whatsoever, funnily enough. You know, uh-huh. I kept reading, you know, the existential stuff that I liked, uh, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, and, if, and the two things were separate. Right. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Well, I mean, for one thing, I mean, let me, let me answer a slightly different question about mm. Richard before I say, how did he contextualize it? Yeah, I'll just, yeah. I'm just when trying I went, to bring it back. I, kind of sure, when, I, things. <laughs> when I went to Boulder and I, and yeah. I, I took that intensive and I mm. heard Richard give, you know, his philosophical talks, I was so inspired by the, the sort of openness, this intellectual suppleness of his mind. And the kind of syncretism um, of his thinking, which is, you know, as you know, in academic philosophy, there's, um, 
there's a tendency to draw distinct, to always point out how this is different from that, how this, you know, to, mm. to you know, to draw distinctions between different things. Um, and, you know, you can almost get the sense that then in different, for example, yogic or spiritual traditions, as if, you know, the various kinds of experiences that, that people are writing about, you know, say in Buddhism, as opposed to classical yoga have almost nothing to do with each other, you know, it can mm. it, <laughs> an academic can make it sound that way. Mm, um, mm. And I, I just remember one of the first things that, that Richard was talking about was on the apparent difference between the, uh, you know, that if, you, if, if you'll forgive the term, the Hindu, the classical Hindu notion of the self mm. as the goal of yoga and the Buddhist notion of sort of no self as the goal mm. of yoga, right? Mm. So there's a, there's an, a sort of obvious grammatical, you know, difference there. Um, they seem antagonistic on mm -hmm. the face of it, right? Like as if you have to decide whether metaphysically you come down on the side of self or no self before yeah. you can go on to practice. <laughs> and I remember Richard talking about this and, and basically, you know, saying with sort of breathtaking, uh, clarity that these were just two different ways of talking about the same experience, just two different ways that language can approach a similar kind of, you know, awakened state. Mm. And I just <clears throat> thought it was so first rate. <laughs> I think people often ask that question. Can you, can, can I, can I study Buddhism whilst it was practicing yoga? Um, I, mean, I mean, on a deeper level, as you get further into it, I mean, I think you've, pursued buddhism further as well and i know richard has and, and people often say well you know he's essentially a, a you know a kind of closet buddhist right you know as if it's a kind of you know slanderous thing to be in terms of a, a yoga <laughs> practitioner do you think well i don't know um you know making a meal out of that but what do you, what do you think can you know you know as you get deeper into it to the can you can you be a buddhist and, and practice yoga asana or, or the two things ultimately the two viewpoints at loggerheads at any point uh, down the line I, I mean i think absolutely of course you can i think it mm. yeah I think absolutely. I think I think there are no, um, you know, there's that there's no interesting conflicts there. Mm. Yeah, and of course, you know, even the Hatha the Hatha Yoga tradition and even the classical tradition of Patanjali seems to be sort of cross pollinated with various. Yeah, there's loads of Buddhism in there, isn't there? Yeah. 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 So, I was thinking that Buddhism is just the kind of psychological part of yoga. They just do the psychology really well, you know, they mind sure states do. and how to, how to com <laughs> yeah. combat negative mind states and how to, you know, when you feel this, do that. And, you know, yeah, it's just much more practical and applicable in lots of ways than the kind of transcendental yoga stuff, which is kind of way out there, you know, mm, so mm. It's easy to get into in lots of ways. I probably would kind of recommend if I, on, on second thinking, if I, if people are interested in yoga philosophy, you might kind of actually give them some Buddhist stuff first of all actually might sure. be a sensible idea yeah it's more more kind of easily approachable isn't it but before it i go off further what about um what about, how did how did richard and, and mary's idea about the the alignment in the asana because obviously they're very specific and, and very skillful about how to teach the asana itself how did that rub off on you how did you absorb that into your own way of teaching um i found it immediately exciting i mean i i found mm -hmm. you know in my own studies um I was sort of drawn to the, like understanding the energetics of 
the asana. So understanding the way that the, that the different asanas sort of impact the pranas and, um, and what kind of psychological impacts that can have. And mm. so I was like that, I mean, I was, I was doing my own sort of personal and, you know, not just experiential, but also, you know, in my reading, I was researching that as much as I could. And then when I came to Boulder and heard Mary and Richard talking about, you know, that, that, I mean, their, their sort of alignment based approach is based on, uh, you know, prana and apana. And so uh, I found that, you know, really exciting and he helped bring a new clarity for me uh, mm. to that, um, to that subject. Um, so yeah. And, and, and of course, mm. it, they, they also sort of teach that subject in such a way that the, you know, the, that the, the alignment between um, prana and apana, uh, it, it, you know, also has a sort of profound uh, psychological impact that can help sort of draw the mind into, um, you know, a more, a more open, more lucid state. Um, mm. So how, how is that different to structural alignment then? Well, I think that if I'm, I'm not sure exa <clears throat> exactly what mm. you mean by structural alignment, but maybe you mean something well, yeah. that's a bit more physiologically oriented. Yes, exactly. Like, yes, yeah, so like yeah. one approach yeah, to the hip bone should rotate this way in order because that's how the sure. joint works. Yeah, so, right, yeah, so right, one kind of, of thing, a, yeah. yeah, so that like the yeah. one kind of approach to alignment has to do with physiology, has to do with anatomy, mm. has to mm. do with functional movement. Exactly. And, you know, that's all wonderful also, but it's not, it, 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 it's, it's different, you know, from an energetic based approach. Yeah. yeah. What's really, I was going to say there, I mean, one thing that's pretty fascinating about it though, is that the sort of energetic based approach seems to, uh, let's say, not to overuse the term, but align very well with the physiological approach. I mean, many, you, you arrive at many of the same kind of uh, conclusions, mm. you know, about how it makes sense to move, but mm. yeah, well, it, at least at, at, you know, at one, if, if you're zoomed in really closely, you know, if you're talking about like how to sort of hold, you know, how to hold a particular, um, Posture, but but the approach that we take, I mean, the approach I've studied with Mary and Richard and continue to explore involves, you know, moving very dynamically with the breath, right? And like, and 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 we find that the breath has a very kind of wave-like motion mm -hmm. as it moves through the body, and that that as it as it cycles and circulates, the 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 then the body kind of undulates with the breath. And that's true, not just in the vinyasa that take you from one posture to another, but mm. you know, when you're holding posture, a particular posture. In the posture itself. Yeah. 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 And so there, I mean, I don't see the sort of anatomical, the structural alignment approach mm. ever mm. addressing mm. like how to move with the breath while you're in a posture or from, from, from posture to posture. But to me, the, the, the real potency of a practice like Ashtanga Vinyasa or any other kind of Vinyasa Krama style, uh, it really depends on that. Mm. Um, I mean, to um, me, that's where the real, the real sweetness, can, and the real yeah, yeah. Of it is. You can, yeah. yeah, you can, 
indisputably see it in your practice and in Richard's and 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 the sense of wave-like undulation is really kind of mesmerizing to watch um how do you how would you frame practically speaking if we could give a slightly further and more concrete kind of explanation of of how the breath implicates the posture and, and are we talking about the diaphragm here or how what's the relationship of the diaphragm to the bundas could you, could you maybe sure. say something a little bit more to, to flesh this out for people speaking how how yeah how gladly. you mean the breath yeah, yeah. Mm. so like um the 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 inhale uh exemplifies a kind of expansive pattern mm. that you know has its seed point at the center of the heart which is the which is the center of prana and so when the prana pattern predominates there's the sense of lifting and spreading and especially the front of the body spreads and lifts i mean like physiologically right as the diaphragm presses down the rib cage goes up and the front of it expands right? yeah the shadow side of that is that you kind of close down on the back of the diaphragm and on the right. zone of the kidneys, you know, where your kind of deep chi or your deep storehouse of prana is. Now with the exhale pattern, the back of the body tends to expand and there's a sense of grounding, of dropping, of contracting, especially toward the pelvis. Um, and so the, a seed point of apana, the dissolving energy, is there in the pelvis mm. and that pattern is expressed by that spreading of the back of the body but the shadow side of that is closing down on the heart so you see as even i'm, I'm talking about it and my mm. collarbones mm. are rolling forward mm. my shoulders mm. draw in the head kind of mm. comes down and there's a mm. it's like this posture as opposed to this one right which has a kind of upward outward expansive uh kind of movement to it yeah so yeah. You know, when we're breathing, we're sort of oscillating back and forth between those two patterns, mm. naturally, rhythmically, you know, everything breathes, everything's continuously either taking something in and that's the, that's, you know, traditionally the, the uh, work of prana or releasing something out. And that's the work of the apana. And there's that kind of continual exchange with, with the environment. Um, and you know, the, and, and so the mind is also doing the same thing. Like our, our thoughts are kind of branching and spreading out. And then, you know, uh, the attention selects one of, a, of the different possible things that I might think and sort of lets everything mm. else dissolve. And that's the mm. aponic force. And then, and then the, the thought that I'm holding on to starts to branch and I follow the thread there. And then the rest dissolves. And so, you know, even in, in thought that sort of prana upana patterns continuously um, oscillating, you know, go, kind of going back and forth. And so the, the, you know, basic idea in Hatha yoga is to work with these opposing forces uh, and to um, bring them into balance. Um, and because when they're in balance, it's, the awareness well let's just say you when those things come into balance it shifts your mode of aware of awareness in a in a very um easily recognizable kind of way so mm. um if so the idea is to keep both of these patterns active simultaneously right so that the dissolving force is continuously active 
And so space is being continuously made for something new to appear. That is for the pranic mm. force to come in, for the inhale to come in, right? And so how do you stay connected to the aponic energy as you're allowing the inhale to expand? How do you stay connected to the pelvis as you allow the in inhale to expand? And that, so that kind of undulating actions come from, you know, using Mula Uddiyana Bandha to lift that aponic energy from the pelvis up toward the heart so that there's more space for the heart to expand. And what you find sort of astonishingly, because it sounds all, you know, it sounds somewhat <laughs> theoretical, philosophical, sophisticated or something, but it's as simple to, to, to start to explore the truth of it. You can simply you know, while you're just sitting and breathing, you can kind of drop your tailbone a little bit down into the earth and drop the sitting bones and gently pull back and up underneath the belly. So that's all like stimulating the aponic force and lifting it up. And you find that when you do that, your inhale's more full than it otherwise would be. Mm. Or if you're in- You mentioned that you're, are you doing it in daily life as well. Sorry to interrupt. Are you, doing, yeah, you mentioned I mean, that the breath is doing it anyway. So I was, it was coming up in, you know, as a question to you, like how is the, is the yoga thing just kind of accentuating what's already happening or bringing further awareness into a pattern that's kind of the breathing is happening anyway, you know? Yeah. Or the, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think, well, it, it, but so ordinarily it's like our attention is either, like we're either, we're either sort of grasping at something or pushing something away, you know? So our attention is like throwing itself toward the pranic movement or throwing itself toward the aponic movement. Mm. Right. Um, mm. And the, the, the state of, of the, the sort of yogic technique of bringing these two energies into, into balance, um, you know, it serves to, bring you into a state where you're kind of letting things go. Like even like just letting your thoughts go as soon as they're arising. Right. Which doesn't mean you're like trying to shut them off or trying to put them down, but just like holding space open to admire the sort of blossoming um, pattern of, uh, of prana psychologically. And this is, you know, this, the, the, that same state is what's represented by the uh, image of Patanjali that's described like in the second verse of the Ashtanga invocation, you have this image of Patanjali in that verse where Patanjali has, he's an amalgam of serpent and human forms. Mm. You know, he's got a serpent's mm. tail from the waist down and he's mm. got a serpent's hood that comes mm. up, you know, from, I always imagine it's probably from the back of the diaphragm and rises up above the head. And mm. then that, that serpent's hood is itself made up of a thousand other serpent's heads. And they're traditionally said to be all singing in different languages. Hmm. And because they represent, they represent prana, they represent the diversity hmm. of different perspectives that you could take on any moment of experience. Hmm. And Patanjali in this image, when you see especially visual or three-dimensional, you know, representations, his, what's human about him is human head and his human heart and his sort of, and also his like pelvis are sort of floating in the middle between these two serpent elements and they represent prana and apana. And mm. he's in a kind of meditative state, right? Like his eyes are closed and he, but he's, he's obviously not sleeping. He's got the subtle smile on his face. He's meditating. 
And he's listening to all of those singing serpent heads without allowing any one of them to distract him out of the present moment. Like he's listening to them all simultaneously. And what's allowing him to do that is the fact that like his attention's not seizing on any one of them, which is what we're always doing. You go, oh, that's what I think. Oh, this is what I mm-hmm. feel. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is what I'm worried about. Oh, this is what I, you know, but instead it's just this, this psychical energy is just blooming and what's allowing him to just attend to all of it without having to like def- locate himself in psychical space, define himself with respect to it is that coiled serpent's tail that's connecting him to the earth, which is to say mm. like apana, which is like, well, that's just good bunda. <laughs> this is just keeping the aponic force continuously, yeah, yeah. continuously active so that there's like a continuous clearing of space, a continuous opening for and so then if you want to understand it kind of in more almost psychoanalytic terms or, or psychotherapeutic terms it's like you know the space of our sort of surface level consciousness is being kept open for anything from the underworld from the world of of well you know from the world of anantashesha from the world of the of the unconscious any psychic material that wants to reveal itself to the to the light of our uh, awareness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is being invited in. It's allowed to be there. And it's, a, it's allowed to kind of move in and just show itself, you know, which is the way that the psychical energy that's behind it is released, but it won't show itself and it won't release until we, until we stop pushing against it, until we stop trying to repress it, trying to put yeah. it down, yeah. trying to mm-hmm. you know, hold it, mm-hmm. trying to hold it below the surface. Um, how, how does the physical posture relate or facilitate to that? Yeah, I think it, I think in the following way that, that, mm. that when we're going through all these different postures, we are inviting the, the, the prana to circulate through our bodies in different ways, you know, and there's this old idea that wherever the prana goes, the chitta goes, you know, mm. it's an old Upanishadic idea that that prana and chitta follow each other. Sometimes it's said like two birds flying in formation. Mm. So it's like you're, you're, so when the prana starts to move in the body in sort of unfamiliar ways, it sort of, and again, this is metaphorical talk, of course, but there's no other way to talk, right? <laughs> that it kind of dredges up the sediment of, of unprocessed experience. Mm, you know, we all know that. I mean, when you do, when you go to practice yoga, you just, it's, it's this, you know, if you really pay attention to your experience, it's like between just lifting your arms above your head and taking a deep breath and folding down into, you know, the second position, you can, you can have all kinds of sort of flashes of old memory, different tastes in your mouth. You smell different things. You, you know, it's like the, the, the sensation, the body just sort of teems with sensation in practicing yoga. And the sensation is like decontextualized, right? Like when you're practicing yoga, you just, you remember all kinds of stuff that you, Mm. that you wouldn't otherwise remember. Mm. You don't, you know, Mm. you don't normally, if you're kind of just engaged in a task or like focused on something, it's not, it's not that quite, quite that same experience, but you start breathing really deeply and rhythmically through the body. And all of a sudden you become so aware of what it is that you're feeling. 
so aware of what's really on your mind. And it sort of starts dredging deeper and deeper. You start becoming aware of things that weren't really on your mind, but that, you know, are sort of things that you're suppressing, you know, different yeah. sort of tangles of old energy, mm -hmm. of memory, of thought, of emotion that, you, that you've been sort of holding down beneath the surface. And you start to feel those things. And then if you let those things into the, the space of your awareness, then the energy that, that you were using to suppress that those things, and also the energy that's tangled up inside them starts mm. to release. And that's profoundly cathartic. Yeah. I mean, talking like this, it doesn't seem that you ostensibly would need the, uh, the sequences of Batawi Joyce that, you know, that what, what makes you continue practicing those, those set sequences rather than just go along with this awareness and, and, and follow the prana and apana through, through any posture that you choose, you know, the well, these sequences that are they're so obviously, you know, have their own foibles and flaws to, to any thinking mind. Right. Yeah. And yet we stick with them yeah. anyway. Well, I mean, and, you know, for the, for the past, I don't know, four years or so, um, I've, I've veered more and more away from following those set sequences and more and more okay. towards just, just sort of following the intelligence of my own breath. Right. Um, but it served me so well to practice those sequences for as long as I did, because it kind of revealed, mm. you know, it's like learning, you're learning your scales as a musician or something. You know, and, and also because it, 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 it sort of showed me, um, it's, it sort of showed me the intelligence of the, of the basic patterns that those sequences follow, um, which kind of reiterates the same pattern that we were just talking about of the apana being lifted up, you know, that, that it, I mean, <clears throat> Let me say it simply, and then if you're interested, I can go, we can, you know, talk at some level of complication about it. But, you know, there's a basic energetic movement in Hatha yoga, right? That, and it goes from low to high, at least first, right? At first it goes from low to high. There's a sense of kind of, you know, the, the process of Hatha yoga is traditionally, um, I mean, there, and there's many, many accounts of it, right? But the account that's mostly captured the modern, modern imagination goes something like this, that when prana and apana come into balance, especially so in the pelvis or in the belly or something, mm, mm, it's sort of, the, it, it sends a surge of creative force through the body. And when creative, that force surges, it sort of, you know, moves through different psychical centers and kind of untangles the psychical energy that's pent up at these different, mm -hmm. you know, levels of experience with all the different emotions that attend those. So there's a kind of cathartic release that, that uh, goes with this surging and the surging goes from low to high, right? And that if it, if it goes high enough that it, you know, goes through the throat and then, you know, all the way into the head, um, and, um, and, you know, draws the practitioner into certain kind of exalted states of consciousness, right. Mm -hmm. Which then, you know, precipitate in the downpouring of the, of the lunar rain, right. Of the nectar of yoga, the, the soma, the, mm. um, the amrita, right. 
Um, so, so Hatha Yoga has both the, this movement of transcendence, which is the surging of creative energy and the descent of grace and the sort of mm. integration mm. of that experience into uh, embodiment. But practice, you know, in the mode of practice, yeah. it's very yeah. much about reiterating. It's very much about reiterating that pattern. And, you know, that, that's, that same pattern um, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an archetypal pattern. I mean, you can hear the way that, you know, I mean, you, you find that pattern in, in any religious tradition, you know, the moment of there's the, the aspiration of the, of the spirit, the lifting, the raising, the, you know, aspiration toward the heavens, and then the sort of divine intimation and, you know, perhaps even the sort of descent. Um, and <clears throat> that same kind of, that same pattern is reiterated through the, the five pranas on the breath. So prana and apana come into balance. It stimulates samana vayu, which is a kind of equalizing, balancing vayu of, you know, when prana and apana are both, when, when the creative force of prana is allowed to spread itself out and then dissolve just as soon as it's arising, it's like the mind never gets tangled up in anything that it's, that it's thinking. And so then if that, if that energy is allowed to move all the way up, because it's said that this, the psychical energy, it, it rises and we experience it like around the head. You know, we experience thought as being in our head, although thought doesn't actually have any physical location, right? I mean, it doesn't have physical dimensionality. Yes, like, yeah. You know, you're I listening to what I'm you know, how long Knowing is the thought that yeah, I'm thinking yeah, right yeah. now? Is it six centimeters or is it, I mean, it's just, a, but we experience it sort of here, you know, around the head. Mm. That's where we think we point to our heads. We, in cartoons, if you want to know who's thinking what you read the thing by their head, you know, it's just the way that we, that we sort of experience that. But the idea is that let's say if, you know, through another important bandha, which is the releasing of the soft palate, Jalandhara bandha those currents are allowed to go all the way through and then they crest at the Dwadashanta, which is the top of that serpent's hood. And then they move back toward the center of the heart. And that's what the kind of curling motion of that serpent's hood represents. And that is just the returning of the energy that's held within any particular thought form back into the subtle body or back into the heart. And it's, I mean, it's kind of a somewhat esoteric sounding way of describing something that's totally familiar, yeah, which is that was, if yeah, you let yeah. go, you know, when yes, you let go right. of something that you're like, say, yes. you're, you know, you're pissed at somebody or you're worried about something, you're holding on to something. And then somehow you just let it go. Like, especially if you forgive somebody and there's a huge weight lifted from your shoulders, if you, if you really have forgiveness, you know, in your heart, like, because it's so much work, you know, to carry around all the weight of that resentment, you know, or the weight of grief, as I know too well, and that when you finally let that go, and if the soft palate's released, it's like that upward energy isn't contracted and caught and held in the form of a particular thought but it's just allowed to move through the space of consciousness and then flow back down. And that energy, you know, then returns to the heart and is reabsorbed in a process that's called Hatha Pekka, which means like su sudden uh, reabsorption. 
uh, of energy. And I take it. I know my my next question is going to disappoint you, but I'm conscious we're running out of time and I know people will be thinking, well, how does this actually practically apply to what he's teaching now? You know, so I suppose I would just, you know, if you don't mind me getting in there and slightly kind of derailing what is a very interesting topic. I mean, I know people will be thinking, well, what is he actually going to teach me now if I come and see Ty? You know, if he's not teaching the sequences exactly and he's teaching me this kind of serpent movement over the crown of the head and then back into the heart how does that manifest in what i'm actually going to learn on asana level on a practical level yeah it it so so i take it that Mm. we are in that in asana practices and in pranayama practices we are participating in that same pattern we're reiterating Mm. this breath Mm. so the way that we the way that we hold it the way that we use the bandhas um the way that we allow the spine to undulate in any given posture and the way that we keep the soft palate released and hold the head so that there can be this kind of turning, you know, this, this kind of cycling, uh, of, uh, of energy on a very fine grained level on a very fine grained physiological, uh, level, we are honing, uh, that that very same pattern mm. mm-hmm. so for for example enroll enrolling from chaturanga to upward facing dog you know that kind of undulating pattern that some mm. people mm-hmm. exhibit and then the, the exact way that you lift your head the exact moment when it comes up and the way you hold the muscles of the face and the jaw as you do all that it it, it makes a profound difference to your mental state over time mm. and to the subtle of the body to the way that you know because that it's like it's one thing just to go through the motions but you can do it so rigidly you know and mm. I, mm. unfortunately you know ashtangis for all the other virtues of their practice are you know i think compared to other yogis we tend to kind of clench a bit a bit you know we hold we, we hold things pretty hard i mean our so essentially you're still you're still teaching the the ashtanga sequences. oh yeah absolutely more, more or less yes you're just a oh yes yes that. yes no okay. i think the sequences so, are amazing right, i still right. I, I still i right. still teach them it's just yeah, yeah in, my, yeah. in my own practice i i allow myself to some variation there mm. yeah for i allow myself mm. quite a lot of variation and i found right, that right. that has been really um that's been really exhilarating. It's been super mm. inspiring. It's been super uh, interesting for me um, mm. because though that that same movement from low to high is one of the things I was trying to say was that mm. is exhibited in these um, sequences. You know that that you you know you start on your feet. You start with your connection to the earth. You always start stimulating the apana. And then you sink low, like doing lots of lunging and, you know, the, the, the standing postures, right. To really like draw that earth energy up into the lower body and stimulate it. And then you start doing deeper hip opening things and going more and more aponic in all of the, the first four Ashtanga series, I'll go like that. Mm. Right. And then you kind of lift the energy higher and then start spreading it out more. Right. So then you, you kind of lift it up more to the heart, more shoulder opening, and then postures that are more expansive where you, you know, the gaze is up, you're lifting, you're spreading, you're mm. opening, 
And then mm. you do closing back bends and then you end with what's essentially just a shoulder standing sequence that really stimulates the, you know, the throat chakra. And then finally on your head with the, um, the, the final headstand mm. lie down. So there's this, there's this energetic movement from low to high, you know, that, that is, you know, just another instantiation of that, you know, basic energetic movement of uh, a full Hatha yoga breath, which always, you know, starts from the pelvis and lifts up and goes through the heart and through the soft palate curls, you know, at the Dwadashanta and then moves back in toward the heart and dissolves back into emptiness. And it's like, so every breath, but also every, every, you know, well-designed vinyasa sequence exhibits mm. that same, that same pattern. Um, mm. And it's, it's profoundly, it's profoundly potent. No, it really. Um... <laughs> what's that? What's your, I mean, I'm kind of intrigued. What's your relationship with Mysore, you know, the Mysore Ashtanga in inverted commas tradition then given this, you know, it's like, can we call it, call it Friedmanian um, kind of, um, <laughs> take take on a take on it which is so subtle and so interesting and and then you know you've got you went to myself for many years and you know you, you followed the set of sequences you've got your authorization you towed you know some degree form of fashion a kind of party line there um yeah what's i'm kind of interested to, to hear anything you might say on your relationship with that uh, in comparison to the kind of happy yoga tradition that you're talking about embodying here which you know i totally yeah agree. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, here's the way that it was always taught to me is that Ashtanga yoga is completely part of that Hatha, Hatha tradition, that it grows mm. out of it, that if you want to understand the deeper intelligence of the Ashtanga system, you understand the Hatha tradition because that's the mm. kind of yoga that it is. Um, it's a breath-based, you know, it is the breath-based asana practice par excellence, right? It's the, mm. it's the one that it's the, you know, it's the real kind of paragon of uh, vinyasa krama styles, but there, it, there's so many possibilities within that, that krama system. I mean, really using that method and, you know, it's just, I, I mean, with, with Ashtanga convention, I mean, that's just, I, I don't know, it's far less interesting, but, you know, of course, for all kinds of pragmatic and sociological reasons, you know, that our like relationship to that intelligence can, I don't mm. know, it kind of ebbs and flows. Like, you know, we kind of can like lose sight of it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Different ways to like, like. Slightly qualify the question more, because I know you can say something interesting about this is how might it be useful in terms of somehow contextualizing this, which could become very, very out there as it were right mm -hmm. is there anything helpful that you can see in let's call it a you know some kind of institutionalization that we find in Mysore uh, and with the teaching uh you know kind of um structure let's say to somewhat protecting something or is it or is it counterproductive at, at some points yeah I don't know I mean I I mean it's a this is a, I, I think it's a tough question honestly I think um yeah yeah I think, um, and you know, not just because I'm worried about saying the wrong thing or hurting somebody's feelings, but I mean, really, I, I kind of think that, I mean, look, I've never been, I've always been a bit on the sort of margins on the outside a little bit. I mean, I'm actually not authorized. I never did, 
I just didn't go down that line. I didn't, I didn't want to get into that because it, to me, it felt a little confining, you know, mm. I, didn't, I, I wasn't, mm. I wasn't ready to sincerely agree to sort of following the rules. Right. I didn't realize that mm. doing mm. this and that. Okay. So, mm. you know, even though I, you know, go have been to my store, I haven't been in a while. Maybe I'll go back sometime. I don't know, mm. but it, I, I mean, I, 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 I have a, I have a, a um, yeah, kind of a qualified uh, relationship to it. I mean, I, I mean, the conventional way of doing things, like every convention anywhere, uh, is maybe a little less intelligent than it could be because convention doesn't necessarily track intelligence; it tracks habit. You know, now yeah. is there a is there a is there some good to, to sort of mm. having a, you know a certain system that's codified and sort of rigidified in a certain group of like absolutely you know absolutely it gives me a reference point mm. gives other people a reference point you know that because like oh my god like how, like how much work would it be where if every time someone a student came to you you had to like teach them sequencing from the very beginning. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, that would be ideal. That would be ideal because then you could give you could give individualized sequences to every student. You know, but even just to do that, you'd have to watch them practice for a while. You have to like really work with someone, right, for weeks, months, so you really get get some sequences going that are serving them, and then you have to keep adapting those sequences if you really, really wanted to serve them well. Yeah, and you, you and logistically, it's just not. It's just not feasible. I mean, a lot of right. it comes down to logistics, doesn't it? We just can't work that way. The person can't come see us every day and can't, and, and you know, we can afford if we're going to, you know, have a livelihood off it to yeah. be able to spend that much time with one, just one person at a time. That's you know, it. Right? And I then think, if you're like Sherrod and you've got hundreds of people coming to you, I mean, what else can you do? But, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, but have yeah, some I mean, super simple, clear conventions. Exactly. Make sure exactly. that everybody follows yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what's your feeling about a teacher then? What do they mean to you? What's the, what's the position, the role of the, a teacher? And, and what would you suggest is that it makes a good teacher? Ooh, yeah. Well, I think, you know, what makes a good teacher is, is someone who's a really good listener, like someone who's really receptive to the whole situation of mm. the student. Um. Because here's the dark side of art. Here's the dark side of Ashtanga and of like having a conventional practice that's, you know, is that we get, we slip too easily into the idea that yoga is about making ourselves conform to a certain pattern, mm. right? Which is absurd, right? I mean, if anything, yoga is about unraveling our, um, you know, our desire to conform to a certain pattern, right? Mm. Like, Mm. Get, getting inside of that and feeling like, well, what, like, why do, like, what, why am I so worried about measuring up and being accepted and belonging, you know, to this group and so on and so forth. And yet, you know, most of the focus, especially for younger practitioners is like, how do I get better and better at doing this? Mm. Like, mm. Whereas you getting better and better by conventional standards at doing that has mm. not so much to do with yoga right? And 
may not necessarily, you know, energetically, what is that going to do for you? And like, what, like at what level are you even exploring yourself while you're doing that? There may be very little receptivity. So like, it seems to me that the very heart of yoga is like for us is learning to be more receptive to our own vital energies, to our bodies. Like our bodies want to, our minds want to purge themselves of excess psychic material. Mm. They want to mm. do that. It. Mm, mm, and, mm. you know, that's just, that's an, that, that's an old point, right? You, the, Jungian philosophy has its way of putting that point. Buddhist philosophy mm. has a way of putting that point. Patanjali's yoga has, or, uh, yoga sutras has a way of putting that point that the, the mind wants to, you know, it wants to be liberated. It wants to be free of, um, you know, what, what's weighing it down. And it, and it will do that. Um, if we, if we give it space, you know, um, and if we work with it intelligently and we're willing to like go through that process with ourselves, but mostly we're kind of terrified, you know, of ourselves and terrified of our demons, terrified of our darkness, terrified of what's going to come up, terrified of what mm. will happen if I'm fully revealed to myself and, you know, and what will others think of me and, and so on and so forth. And the yoga is meant to help us come to terms with those fears so that we can have a deep intimate relationship with, you know, our deeper selves with the, with the, and with that sort of wellspring of creative energy that, um, you know, that is, that is, um, you know, that, that, that eventually expresses itself as our minds. And so a, a yoga teacher that if a good yoga teacher would be someone, you know, who's developed some rapport, um, you know, with that sort of deeper spring of creative energy in themselves and, you know, and then, and, and having, and, and being steeped in that process can also sort of, you know, help, help, help other people to, to, to find that same kind of receptivity, mm. Mm. you know, and then to show them, of course, how do, well, how do you, what do these practices have to do with all that? How do you use these practices in an intelligent way to bring that off? Yeah. But it's all about giving space, exactly, space and context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knowing it, knowing exactly where, you know, according to, you know, the, 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 the current year in Mysore, whether you put your hand like this or like this, okay. this or that pose. I mean, it has not, I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. it has nothing to do with it. Precision is very, very important, but it's precision of responsiveness, precision of like, how am I holding my body as I'm breathing? Mm. Precision mm. in feeling and precision in the way that I'm moving to create these, these, uh, this sort of cycling of, prana that that's sort of that, mm. that so that that i'm continuously inviting that cathartic release all right ty well it's been a fantastic chat with you and i'm gonna ask you now just to wrap it up where do you see yourself in in say 10 years time what what you know <laughs> what, what do you what, you know what, no what, what's idea. your aspirations what, what do you want to be doing um, and what you know and, and i suppose let me know what you're currently doing as well yeah. Well, I, I do know this, that if I reflect back and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of cr creeping near 50 now that there's oh, yeah. never been any point in my life where I could, 
where if you had asked me where I would have been 10 years ago, that it would have yeah, had yeah. anything remotely resembling where, where I was in that moment. So, yeah, so that's why I, I, I kind of laugh about, you know, where I'll be in 10 years. I mean, I, I really don't know. Um, but, you know, I have two young children. Um, they're, they're seven and four. And um, I spend more and more time with them. They're, they're homeschooled. And, um, so my wife and I are, are teaching them. And, um, so certainly, you know, that will be a huge, huge part of my life for the next, mm. I don't know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, um, they're going to be some pretty smart children as well. Probably pretty good at <laughs> yoga mythology as, or as well. Wild. They're, <laughs> they're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. they're very they're going to hear all that. They're going to, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Um, okay, not very so that, good at following patterns. <laughs> yeah. 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 But very good at self-expression. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, um, I've never been more inspired than I am right now to teach, to teach yoga and um, to experiment, um, you know, with kind of, I don't know, still working from the Ashtanga system of course, um, because that's where my roots are. And it's, I think like, it's always, for me, it's always important to like, you know, to stay connected to my roots, um, but also to, you know, to share the intelligence of what has been revealing itself to me in the last several years um, through practice. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited about all that. Advice for younger self? advice for my for my <laughs> self <laughs> yeah 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 it's always a good one yeah. yeah i've got loads of these questions i'll just throw out throw out a couple of thought yeah. advice for my younger self um yeah trust just trust so we always put in the notes where um where and what you're doing but what are you what are you currently doing that people can kind of come come to or come find you on anything coming up that's of interest? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, um, I mean, I have a lot of, uh, intensives coming up, especially in Europe. Um, but also in, so I've got something in India, um, a month long intensive at purple Valley from, uh, mid January to mid February. Um, oh. a number of other shorter workshops in Europe, also a month long, uh, teacher's enhancement course in Sintra, Portugal in midsummer. Okay. Um, and uh, another, um, uh, also a two week intensive in Boulder in late summer, uh, and a bunch of shorter workshops and retreats yeah. scattered around. Oh, that's fantastic. The, the, the longer term intensive periods will be fantastic with people especially with the, you know the depth of information you're discussing here it's not something that you can really convey and it's certainly not on a podcast but not even in a weekend workshop so that's nice yeah, to hear right. and, and um yeah i envy anyone that's able to spend that time with you um well thank you Adam. and uh take this time to to say thanks again for coming on it's been a wonderful time with you um and um we'll put we'll put in the notes where you can find time links to his stuff um and uh yeah i'm sure everyone will really appreciate listening to us and um yeah thank you thank you for making that time and speaking so eloquently on on such a complicated manner thank you thank you adam yeah. thank you